Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We will start in verse 14 and hear about learning to give and to receive both. Well, there was a pastor of a church and he had in his congregation somebody who had a heart condition and was pretty weak. But this fellow, they learned, inherited $2 million. And so the pastor sent an elder to this fellow to tell him. But he said, tell him very carefully because he's got a heart condition and he might have a heart attack. So the elder went and, and, and took care of business and he came back and the pastor said, did you tell him? He said, yeah, I told him he inherited $2 million and he said he's gonna give $1 million to the church. And the pastor had a heart attack. <laughs> As a former pastor, I can tell you that might give you a little bit of a heart attack. One thing I made it a policy not to do as pastor of a church was to know what people gave. And the reason was I felt like I probably would have a heart attack if I knew what some people gave and what some people didn't give. And I didn't want that to influence my opinion of them. So I stayed in the dark. I never knew what anybody was giving. And I, I think that's a healthy practice because you'll find people that have very little giving very sacrificially and it just amazes you. And you'll find people that have very much giving very stingily, is that a word, poorly? And that amazes you just as much. So we're talking about giving and receiving because really that's what the book of Philippians is about. If you remember at all, our introduction to the book and maybe some comments along the way, the book of Philippians was written by Paul from a prison cell to thank the Philippian church for their support in his ministry from the very beginning, he says. And here he's thanking them because Epaphroditus sent a gift to him while he was in a Roman prison, and it was there for his support. And we know from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 that they gave out of their deep poverty, the scriptures say. So here was a church in deep poverty that gave generously to the Apostle Paul. And he is so grateful for their fellowship in the gospel. And that word fellowship takes on a different meaning, not just camaraderie or friendship, but it actually speaks of financial sharing. That's the way the word is used in chapter one and in chapter four here. So he's going to, it's really a thank you note, and this is how he's going to conclude it. It's kind of difficult sometimes to talk about giving. I don't think a lot of preachers like to do that because their motives are being questioned. Um, but, you know, what we're talking about here is not what the recipient gets from giving, but what the giver gets and what God gets. So really all three parties, the giver, the receiver, and God himself. When it comes to giving, there's a lot of misunderstanding and abuse and neglect sometimes. And uh, for, for some, giving has become a great burden, but it really should be a joy when you see and understand it from the scriptural perspective, Paul's perspective perspective here as he explains it. It sets in motion blessings for the giver, for the receiver, and for God. So we're going to talk about all three of those things. We're going to start with the, uh, 
uh, well, we, we'll probably intertwine them all, but talk about all three of them, how the giver, the receiver, and God are, are blessed by those who give generously. One thing we saw in the last time we were here was that in the passage above, in verses uh, 10 through 13, the Apostle Paul said that he had learned to be content no matter what the state was. He wasn't depending on money to make him feel content or happy or joyful. And he had to learn to be content no matter what state he was in. Meaning even when he was in poverty or even when he was in prison, he was content with such things as he had. Not many of us could probably honestly say that. But Paul said he had to learn to do that. And then when he gets down to verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And of course, the context there is his contentment and his conditions. <clears throat> his condition, his contentment didn't depend on his conditions. And that's how he could be, um, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not talking about he can run uh, a four minute mile through Christ who strengthens him, although that could be true for some people. He's talking about being content. So then he goes on in verse 14, and he talks about how giving can be neglected. I'm, I'm going to read verses 14 through 15. He says, after he says that I've learned to be content, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. From the very beginning of the gospel, I think that refers to the time when he first preached the gospel to them in Philippi. And just to refresh your memories, remember he went to uh, Philippi and he was arrested and he witnessed to the jailer. That's where we get, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he went on to, uh, well, he witnessed to Lydia first and then to the jailer. And so that's how the church was started in most likely scenario was that a jailer and a, a woman started the church in Philippi and it just kind of grew from there. So from the very beginning though, they helped him and supported him from the beginning of the time they first heard the gospel. You can read about that in, in the book of Acts chapter 16, 17, 18. From there he went on to Thessalonica and, um, and from there on to Corinth and then eventually ended up in Rome where he was in prison. Now he says, here, <clears throat> that they did well to share in his distress. And that word share is where we get this word uh, fellowship from, koinonia from. And it, back in chapter one and verse six and seven, he expresses his confidence that what God began in them, the work that God began in them, he would complete until the day of Jesus Christ. And what he's speaking about there is I think their financial partnership. He's not talking about that they would persist in good works as some people interpret this, but that they would continue their financial support uh, even up to the present time. And in uh, verse seven, just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart in as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. So they're sharing with him in grace. And uh, that's, that's where we get this idea of fellowship from. It's not just re, uh, friendship and camaraderie, but it is actually sometimes used for financial sharing. So Paul was confident that they would continue that throughout his ministry. And um, 
he also notes that some were not willing to do that. In verse 15, he says, he mentions that no church in the Macedonia area shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So in contrast to the generous Philippians, there were some in the Macedonia area uh, that just didn't share with him. And they, they neglected this practice of giving to support his ministry. Um, and that's the truth of it, is there are some churches and people who are very generous and there are some who are not. And he talks about this term, he uses giving and receiving, concerning giving and receiving. That's actually language from the ledger or language from the accounting world. It, think of it as a, an asset and liability column or a, a debit and a credit column, a giving and receiving column. Or maybe we'd put it this way, I don't know. But um, it's, it's uh, language from the accounting world. And he's saying that there were some who just weren't a credit to me and didn't benefit me at all. Why didn't they give to Paul? Well, we don't know that. Uh, but why doesn't anybody give? Maybe because they're short-sighted. They don't understand God's heart. They don't understand God's purpose. They don't understand God's mission in life. Uh, maybe they lack compassion to share with others. But rarely, rarely is it for a lack of money that people don't give. The Philippians are proof of this. They didn't have money. He called, he called them uh, in deep poverty in 2 Corinthians 8, and yet they gave. They gave sacrificially and as generously as they could. It reminds us of the, the widow who only had two mites and she gave the two mites. Not having a lot of money is never an excuse for not giving. Paul doesn't say that. I'm saying that. I'm using the Philippians as an example of the contrary to that. Many people have cirrhosis of the giver, a disease that keeps them from being generous because they're consumed with their own needs and they're short-sighted with what God is doing in the world. But the fact is, is that it takes money. It takes money to pay rent or purchase a property or to pay the electric bill or to support church staff or leaders or uh, missionaries on the mission field to produce written materials and have children's clubs. All of these things take money and that money doesn't grow on trees. It comes from God's people, not the government. It comes from God's people. And it's a, it's a privilege and a blessing to share that. But some people just don't get it. I had a friend in seminary and he helped manage a, um, a cemetery not far from here in part-time. And he lived though in like a garage apartment for a very rich couple in North Dallas. And he says he watched as this couple, you know, put up uh, expensive French shutters all around their house. And they really never helped him with tuition, which was very expensive for us especially when you couldn't work full-time in seminary. But he says at the cemetery where he worked, managed part-time, there was a grave digger there who gave him $200 for tuition. That was some time ago, so $200 would have been four or $500 today. This grave digger had a vision and the heart of God that so many can easily lack and neglect. 
So giving is often neglected, is what we see here, verses 14 through 15. Not by all, luckily. But we can learn to give, and I think that's what he goes on to show. And the lesson that we learn from that is when we learn to give, everyone is blessed. The giver, the receiver, and God. First of all, let's look at the recipient. And um, verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So when he traveled on to Thessalonica, their giving followed him. And then look at the beginning of verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Paphroditus the things sent from you. Remember, he was the messenger that brought them, him, Paul, the gift. And so Paul is talking about himself as a recipient, and he words it that uh, they, it took care of his necessities in verse 16, and he feels like he's abounding or full because of this gift that they gave. I don't know how much they gave, we don't know, but it, Paul had learned to be content whatever the state he was in, right? So anything that he had would have felt like he was full and abounding in God's blessings. And I think that's what he's saying here. He was satisfied, he was content. It was a great encouragement to him as a recipient of that gift. And that's what, if you look up in verse 10, he says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. So again, he's saying it brought joy to his heart to know that they really cared about him enough to take care of some of his financial needs in verse 10. And in verse 17, it says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He's saying here, uh, he, he's, he's not looking for or asking for support for himself, but what he's looking for is how their support actually gives, bears fruit for them, is a profit for them. Again, that's language I think that reminds of the accounting world. It's a profit to them. It's a, it's a crude interest to them when they give to him. Paul learned the value of fellowship with these people more than the financial gift because he knew the financial gift would bless not just himself, but them as well. He learned to rejoice that the giver would be blessed. So the question is, when we talk about giving to God's work or God's workers is not how much do I give, but how much do you want to be blessed? That's the question. How much do you want to be blessed? And not only is the recipient blessed, but in verse 18, God is blessed. Look what he says in verse, the second part of verse 18. When he talks about this gift, he calls it a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were animals. They were smelly, and they were, and by the time they were sacrificed, they were a bloody mess, to be honest with you. Uh, so why does he call giving and compare them to these sacrifices, which would probably come to the mind of those who read this? Well, I think the link is obedience. Sacrifice is obedience, if done in the right spirit. And that honors and glorifies God. You remember what God said as a rebuke to Saul when Saul offered sacrifices to him, even though he, it was a disobedient, disobedient act to God? 
He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what he told Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. So why are these gifts a sweet-smelling aroma and a sacrifice to God? Because they're doing it out of obedience to God, who told them to share with those who are doing God's work. And so in obedience, they're blessing Paul and they're blessing God. We as believers have a priestly function. Um, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, but what we do is we offer sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of financial uh, gifts, uh, sacrifices of song. Um, Hebrews tells us uh, that we offer the sacrifice of praise, book of Hebrews chapter 13. So that's one of our priestly functions in a way that we can offer these to God and God is blessed by them because they're acts of obedience. And then uh, God is blessed, but also the giver is blessed. And that's where the fruit comes in. As I said, verse 17 says that he seeks not the gift for himself, but the fruit that abounds to your account or their account. And so he's excited about the benefits and the blessings that they'll get from their giving. I think we don't have to remind you what Christmas is all about when we're older. It's not about what we get, right? It's about what we give and the joy we see from those who get it. Mostly our children and grandchildren at this point. If, if I don't know if you're like my wife and I, but <clears throat> we tell our children, don't get us anything for Christmas. We've got too much stuff. If we need it, we go out and buy it. So there's nothing you can really give us. Save the money and spend it on your children. And we'll spend our money on the grandchildren. We just choose names to get, get gifts for our children. So we're only getting maybe one gift uh, per person from one person. But the grandchildren, they get spoiled, right? And that's what gives us joy is when we see them opening the gifts and rejoicing and having fun with them on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or whenever you open your gifts. But the joy is to the giver and it's to our profit and benefit. And we could say that that's um, the fruit of our giving. That's the interest that we give by the gifts that we invest in other people. We have benefits in this life. Um, when he talks about fruit, what exactly is he talking about? Well, he might be talking about the fact that in this life, they'll have a more fruitful life, a more fruitful ministry in the sense of maybe good works, maybe a stronger witness, maybe more converts, maybe a deeper ministry. Um, maybe it'll prompt more prayers from them. Could be a number of things because he doesn't specify what the fruit is. He also could be referring to either both or both and future eternal rewards in the kingdom of God because we know that what we do in this life makes a difference in the next life. And if when we're generous in this life, Jesus said we're laying up treasures in heaven. And we know that there are rewards for those who are generous in the next life. And so that fruit may be a profit that accrues and is paid in full in the kingdom of God. And um, so Paul's seeking that for them that would abound, he, he says, to their account, to your account, he says. Again, using, I think, the language of the ledger or accounting language. Another way that giving benefits is that uh, it blesses the giver because needs are met. Verse 19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. A very familiar verse, not always used, I think, 
in the proper way in the context it was given. Why can Paul say to those who have given him a gift, why can he say to them, my God will supply all your needs? He's not talking to you and me. He's talking to the Philippians who are generous. Why can he say that? Because they have been generous in supplying his needs. They have been generous in obeying God. And I think the principle then that translates to you and me today is that when we are generous to giving to people's needs, when we are generous to giving God's, to God's work or workers, that we can count on him to supply our needs as well. My God will supply your needs if you're generous. That would be the context. If you're generous in your giving, my God will supply all your needs. And he can do that according to his riches and glory. Not out of just a little bit out of his riches, but according to it. How much riches does he have? That's how much blessings he can bless with. And that's how he can supply our needs. It is a wonderful promise to the Philippians. And it has a wonderful application to us today. So as they meet Paul's needs, God will meet their needs. So there's, if you compare verses 18 through 19, you see that in verse 18, he's talking about uh, uh, receiving from God, from their gift, and he, bless, he is blessed, and God is blessed, and then in verse 19, they can be blessed by God supplying their needs. What a blessing then that giving generates for uh, God's people in the giving and the receiving, and then God himself. So their needs can be met. And when you think about it, what is our greatest need? Our greatest need is, of course, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and God supplies that need first. And once he supplies that need and we're in his family, then he promises certain things to his children. He promises that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4, 16, in our time of need, and God will give us grace to help in our time of need. So whenever we have a need, we can come to God's throne of grace. I don't want to trivialize it, but think of it as a bank. And he'll just give us out of his riches of Fort Knox, the blessings that he has. He'll give us according to his riches and glory. He'll dispense those blessings if we come boldly and confidently to him, knowing that he really does want to give those to us. So uh, our greatest need is the need for eternal life and forgiveness of sins, but... Sometimes, you know, our needs are not what we think they are. Uh, we, we think we have certain needs, but really they're, they're not needs, they're greeds. They're things that we just really want. And we might covet them or lust after them. Um, <clears throat> and that's not what God is promising to meet. He's promising to meet what are really our needs. That starts with our spiritual needs, but it could extend to the things that we need in the physical world as well, the physical realm as well. So our, our real needs are sometimes what we do not realize. And those who are generous with God and his work can expect God to be generous to them. Hudson Taylor pioneered missions into China and he had something, he said something that's often quoted today. He said, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack God's supply. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, <clears throat> it will not lack God's supply. So you notice there's a cause and effect relationship here. 
that um, God likes the smell, the sweet aroma of our sacrificial giving, that he gives more so that we can give more to him. So the picture here is of the sacrifices in the Old Testament that burned and the smoke went up into the sky and God could smell that as a sacrifice of obedience to him. But here, of course, the sacrifice he's talking about is the financial gift that they gave. And when God sees that happening between his people, he's pleased just like he was with the smell of those sacrifices. And he says, you know what? I'm gonna give more to that person because that person knows how to give to me. And, and he gives more. And that's what I think he means when he supp says supplies all of your needs in this context. So there's kind of a cause, of, cause and effect when we give to God God gives more for us so that we can continue to be generous. And that's in the truth of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as well. That those who are generous will get more seed for the sowing so that they can continue to give to God. We won't go back and look at that passage, but um, I think you'll recall that's what it teaches. <clears throat> I like what Warren Wiersbe said, so I'll quote it. He says, he, as if he's talking to the Philippians or anybody, he says, you met my need God will meet your need. You met one need, God will meet all your needs. You gave out of poverty, God will supply from his riches. So we, you know, we just can't outgive God. We give our gift and to meet a need and God gives to supply our needs. We might give to one thing a person needs God promises to give to everything that we need in verse 19. We might give out of poverty, but God gives his rich supply from his riches. Well, in this passage, we see that when we learn to give, everyone is blessed. You just can't outgive God. There was a philanthropist who gave to a lot of causes and someone came up to him and said, how do, you, how do you afford to keep giving your money away? And he said, well, I just shoveled it out and God shovels it in. And God has a bigger shovel than me. And that's true, isn't it? That's what this is saying. You can't outgive God. You supply a need, someone has, and God will supply all your needs, is what the promise is to the Philippians and the application is for us. I have never seen a Christian regret even the most sacrificial giving that he or she might do. I could probably ask you today, have you ever made a sacrificial gift and regretted it? If it wasn't a fraudulent cause, maybe if it was a, a Bernie Madoff or something, maybe you would regret it. <clears throat> but I doubt that you've given to a legitimate Christian need and ever regretted it, even when you gave more than you thought you should or could give. I've never seen anybody like that. And yet the average evangelical Christian live, gives less than 2% to the church in ministry. Only $1 out of $100,000 in the American church goes to cross-cultural ministry or missions. Only one out of $100,000 goes to cross-cultural missions. And so the state of giving is very poor. I don't think people have learned the lesson Paul's trying to teach them. And that's not how we reach the world. A fellow named Bernard Edinger said, the world will never be one to Christ with what people can conveniently spare. 
It's not what we conveniently spare, it's what we might sacrificially give like these Philippians did. That's what changes the world. That's what sets off this chain reaction of blessing. And so God supplies our greatest needs, forgiveness. What can we give back to him in exchange for that great blessing, that eternal life that we receive? But see, that's what grace is all about. Grace gives. It doesn't require anything in return. He'll give us eternal life. He'll give us a future with him forever. And he doesn't ask us for a penny. He doesn't ask us for anything. He just wants us to realize what, we, what he's given to us and, and then live thankfully. That's what he wants. But he doesn't even require that for us to experience eternal life. We'll be happier if we do. And God will be happier if we do live a good and godly life. But that's what grace is all about. Grace gives us the gift and keeps giving when we don't deserve it. And that's how Paul ends the epistle. He began it with a word of grace and his greeting in chapter one, and now he ends it with a word of grace as well. I'll just go through the, last, the final verses of this chapter, which end the letter. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Tightening the fellowship here with, with the other Christians. The brethren who are with me greet you. We don't know exactly who that is. Could have been Timothy with him at least. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Remember back in chapter one, Paul said I'm, that he was rejoicing because the gospel is being spread even though he's in prison. And uh, he, it's being spread among the Romans, the soldiers, the guards, perhaps the servants. Uh, and, and so now some of them have been saved and they're sending their greetings back to the church. Isn't that interesting? So what we see in chapter one, we see again at the end of the book that there are those that Paul had witnessed to and won to the Lord. And then he ends with the very familiar benediction, which started as a blessing in the beginning of the book. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There's not much that needs to be said when we wish somebody God's grace except amen, because that's what we all need. We all need the grace of God that forgives our sins when we didn't deserve to be forgiven, when gives us eternal life when we deserved to be condemned and separated from God forever. When, when we live our lives poorly, God continues to forgive and offer his fellowship and his blessings to us. It's all by grace. It starts with grace. It continues by grace. It's kept by grace. And we'll be seen home by God's grace. Like the, the hymn Amazing Grace says, his grace will see me home. <clears throat> so uh, like the book, our lives end, begin with the grace of God and ends with the grace of God. And all along the way, we see that grace coming out of this book as Paul mentions uh, Jesus Christ as the very center of his life. Remember he said in chapter one, verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. And that's kind of at the heart of this book. Did you know there's 104 verses in this book of Philippians, in this letter? And 51 of those verses make reference to Jesus Christ name Jesus Christ or use a title for him. 51 out of 100, almost half of the verses speak of Christ. So Paul is, has been communicating how Christ is the center of his life. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We learned also was an important theme in Philippians. 
because if Christ is going to live out his life through us, we have to think like him, which was a, a mindset of humility, remember, that considers us, ourselves as servants to other people instead of as lords over them, just as Jesus came and served and died for us. So the book leaves us, I think, in awe of God's grace and what Jesus can do, and uh, we thank him for it. And I trust that God's grace has been the experience in your life, that you have come to the realization that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. There's nothing you can do to lose God's love. That God's grace is absolutely free. And he gives it to us when we don't deserve it. And eternal life is just there for the asking because Jesus paid the price on the cross. And then what Easter and Resurrection Day is all about is that he rose from the dead. And he lives today so that he can save us when we come to him and simply believe and receive that gift of eternal life. So I trust that that's your experience today, that you have that gift of eternal life. And if not, that you just close your eyes with me at the end here and ask him for that gift and, and then thank him for that gift of salvation. And then he'll supply that gift by his grace and supply every need as you continue to live with him, walk with him, and share in his work and with his workers. So let's just close in a word of prayer. And so, our Father, I come before you. We thank you for this wonderful book that was written to remind us that Jesus is at the center of everything. And because of that, um, we, can, we can be blessed, we can be content, we can have all of our needs met as we learn to live and walk with him and, and uh, be generous towards others and servants towards others. We thank you that Jesus Christ humbled himself to serve our greatest need, which is the need of salvation, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins. And that he did that by his obedience, even to death, as, a, as your servant, he died for us on the cross. And if anyone here is not sure about their salvation, anyone that hears my voice is not sure about their salvation, then might they just bow in their hearts right now and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Uh, I want to receive your gift of eternal life that you paid for. I thank you for it. And I want to, I want to live for you. But even so, free gift I receive, grace I receive as a free gift by just simply believing in Jesus Christ. And then, Father, I pray for the grace to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we thank you for this, uh, this book and the message today. I pray, Lord, that it has spoken to many hearts and uh, we just give you the glory. That's all we can say is uh, from grace to grace in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.